0: Have you ever seen the TV show Undercover Boss? I've only stumbled upon it a few times, and when I have just happened to see it, I, I have to say I'm totally gripped by the show and by the concept, which is the boss, the CEO of some company of the week descends from their lofty corner office, dons the garb of the regular rank and file, the people who work the store and are the ones that actually complete the transactions that make money for the company and usually has some disguise on so that the employees won't recognize that it's the boss there working alongside them. And they do this whole sort of show about their interactions and what the boss learns. Now, you would think, however, that the presence of all these cameras in the store or the restaurant or whatever might tip off the employees that something else is afoot or going on. But, you know, they do the cutaways with the the boss who's what he's learning and what he's seeing and how… The employees are doing well here and maybe not doing so well over there. And then at the end of the show, typically there's a moment where the boss takes off the, the, the costume, the disguise, and then the employees recognize him and they have a little conversation about, you know, what's going well, things they might be doing differently. Sometimes they're sitting there eating together and having a laugh about this entire experience. But typically it's a moment of compassion and understanding for the boss who learns a little more about what the business is like from that vantage point. Maybe you can see why I'm thinking about that show as we look at this text today as Jesus comes back to the disciples and has a conversation and they don't recognize him until they're sitting at the table together. And he has a little feedback for them about that experience. It reminds me as well of a conversation I had with a friend many years ago. His name is Wayne. And Wayne, at the time, was not somebody who was very interested in church, although he was very interested in conversation about spirituality and philosophy and religion. And and I love talking about those things too, so we would often engage around those topics. And during one such conversation, he said something to me that just floored me. And it floored me so much, as soon as I got home, I wrote it down because I knew one day it would be good sermon material. (laughs) So here it is. He said, Matt, if I was to create my own God, I would have a God who knows what it's like to be alone. A God who maybe even felt afraid or abandoned. What good is a God who sits up in the clouds. Give me a God covered in mud and blood. A God who is humble and compassionate. Maybe not pretty, but real. Now, that was amazing enough, but he wasn't done. He had more to say. He went on, the only problem with a God like that is you might not recognize him. You could walk right past him on the street and miss him. He could be standing right in front of you, staring you in the face, and you wouldn't know. You'd have to learn to keep your eyes open and be ready for surprises. I have never before and have never since heard a better definition of a God of Christianity than that. The surprising God of resurrection, the God of mud and blood who we don't always recognize isn't easily explained and constantly surprises us. Well, I had many similar conversations with Wayne and with anybody else who's willing to talk with me on the roads of life about the meaning of it all, what Christianity is all about, religion, the whole thing. So, it's very easy for me to imagine those two disciples, those two characters, walking along the road to Emmaus, I can almost hear them talking. Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah, they say. Jesus was supposed to be the one to liberate Israel, to free the people from oppression, and now He's gone, and what has changed? Nothing. The Roman Empire is still in charge. They still have their boot on our necks. Was it all a mistake? Have we been fooled by some kind of fake news hoax? Were we wrong to put our hopes in this man? Sure, there were rumors about sightings of Jesus, but that all seems pretty far-fetched. Maybe it's safer to conclude that Jesus is dead, God is dead, and we are still stuck in the same predicament. We might find ourselves in a similar place, struggling to understand the death, and then the resurrection of Jesus, what it all means. And and today, is there still value in the religion founded in his name considering how few people who call themselves Christians actually follow Jesus? Mahatma Gandhi was a Hindu who, as a younger man, studied in depth all of the great religions of the world. And after completing his study of Christianity, He came to the conclusion that in his opinion, Christianity was the most compassionate, the most loving, the most complete religion. And so, Gandhi resolved to become a Christian. But then, he went to church. And he discovered, quite to his shock and dismay, that there was something of a chasm between the Jesus that he found in Scripture and the way his followers often behaved. And so, Gandhi resolved to become a Christian as soon as he met one. He said the whole world, if all Christians acted like Christ, the whole world would be Christian. Just on Friday, I was chatting with somebody who is new to Virginia Highland Church, and we were lamenting the state of the world and the state of the church and how the church has been sort of co-opted by this whole Christian nationalism faction and white supremacy and the MAGA crowd and the whole thing. And so we decided maybe we could do our part by creating a new reality TV show called Christian-ish. Christian-ish, can't you see it? you know, looking at all the faults and foibles and all out failures of those who claim to be Christian, not just of that crowd, but really of all of us. Because sadly, many people believe that religion is mostly about belief and believing things. We, we actually call religious people, sometimes Christians are called believers, as if believing is the main thing and the most important thing That we do. And therefore, Christianity for many has become about believing things, believing the right things and not behaving in the right way, in the most compassionate way. And this is fascinating to me because this word believe actually comes, actually means to give your heart to, to hold dear. It doesn't mean to give intellectual assent to a certain set of theological or philosophical principles. It means what I give my heart to. So if you ever struggle with, well, what do I believe? I'm not sure what I believe. What are my beliefs? Turn the question around. Ask yourself, what have I given my heart to? What are the causes? What are the values? What are the things? What are the relationships that I have given my heart to? And you'll discover right away, those are the things That you believe in. That defines your belief, what you have given your heart to. When people get married, as they have in this space right here for decades, they don't stand before God and the gathered community and say, let me tell you what I affirm about the institution of marriage. (laughs) That would be a little boring. Instead, what they say is, I believe, I give my heart to you. I give my heart to us. I give my heart to our future together. That is a profound statement of belief. So religion is not about believing in things. Religion ultimately is about shaping our heart to live more compassionately. The British scholar um, Karen Armstrong has made a whole career out of this, out of trying to get religious people to see that compassion is what unites every religious faith. And she has this thing she launched in 2014 or 15 called the Charter of Compassion, trying to get religious leaders, communities, and cultures to come back to this basic foundation that compassion is what religion is about ultimately and everywhere. And so we're now going to listen to a short clip or watch a short clip by the very British Karen Armstrong.
1: And it is an arresting fact that right across the board, in every single one of the major world faiths, compassion, the ability to feel with the other in the way we've been thinking about this evening, is not only the test of any true religiosity, it is also what will bring us into the presence of what Jews, Christians and Muslims call God or the divine. Uh, It is compassion, says the Buddha, which uh, brings you to Nirvana. Why? Because in compassion, when we feel with the other, we dethrone ourselves from the center of our world and we put another person there. Once we get rid of ego, then we're ready to see the divine. And in particular, every single one of the major world traditions has highlighted and has Said at the, put at the core of their tradition what's become known as the golden rule. First propounded by Confucius five centuries before Christ. Do not do to others what you would not like them to do to you. That, he said, was the central thread which ran through all his teaching and that his disciples should put into practice all day and every day. And it was uh, the golden rule would bring them to the transcendent value that he called ren, human heartedness which was a transcendent experience in itself. Um, And this is absolutely crucial to the monotheisms too. Uh, There's a famous story about the great Rabbi Hillel, the older contemporary of Jesus. A pagan came to him and offered to convert to Judaism if the rabbi could recite the whole of Jewish teaching while he stood on one leg. Hillel stood on one leg and said, that which is hateful to you do not do to your neighbor. That is the Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and study it. Um, And go and study it. it was what he meant. He said, in your exegesis, you must make it clear that every single verse of the Torah is a commentary. A gloss upon the golden rule. Uh, The great Rabbi Meir said that uh, any um, interpretation of scripture which led to hatred and disdain or contempt of other people, any other people whatsoever was illegitimate. St. Augustine made exactly the same point. Scripture, he says, teaches nothing but charity and we must not leave an interpretation of scripture until we have found a compassionate uh, uh, interpretation of it. And this struggle to find compassion in some of these rather rebarbative texts is a good dress rehearsal for doing the same in ordinary life.
0: So if I can try to summarize that in just a few words. Scripture, the point of scripture, I think, according to Dr. Armstrong, is to develop compassion and companionship that one fosters the other. And companionship is a, a lovely word. It literally means to share bread, to share bread with each other. The companion is the one who breaks bread with us. It is that intimate act of breaking bread, sharing a meal with someone that we come to really know that person, to hear their story. When we're first getting to know someone, we first meet someone perhaps, perhaps, and we want to get to know them, learn more about them, we probably don't start out with, hey, tell me all of your religious beliefs, right? Like, that might be a third date conversation. The first thing we just say is, hey, you wanna get coffee? You wanna get lunch and just talk and learn about each other, get acquainted, share stories? And the breaking of the bread with the stranger perhaps in that moment we can see them more clearly. We have compassion for them. We hear their story. We understand them. And maybe we even see the presence of God in them. And in our listening and sharing, who knows? Maybe they'll see the presence of God in us too. Being at the table puts us at the same level. Sharing stories puts us In a state of common humanity, learning about each other, seeing each other, that is not only what can happen between people, that is in fact, I think, what creates a more just and equitable society. And I think we know this intuitively, which is why the history of denying people and groups access to the table has been one of the primary ways that we have maintained systems of injustice and exclusion. And tragically, that started right here with this table, the communion table. For centuries, the church said, Oh, no, you can't come to this table unless you believe just like us. Because if we welcome people who believe differently and think differently, well, we might begin to hear their stories. We might suddenly have compassion for them. They might change us and we don't want that. Then it became, no, we can't let women come to the table other than their own kitchen table, because if we let women come to the table, this table, or the boardroom table, well, then we might hear their stories. We might develop understanding and have compassion for them, and that might change us, and we don't want that. Then it became, no, we can't let queer people come to the table, that table, or any table because then we'll begin to hear their stories. We'll have compassion for them, and that might change us, and we don't want that. Then it became, well, no, we can't let people with disabilities come to the table. First of all, we might have to change our building just so they can get in and have a seat at the table, but then we'll begin to hear their stories. We'll develop understanding and have some compassion for them, and that might change us, and we don't want that. There is this fear among those who are already at the table that if we let other people come to the table who historically have not been there, that those who have been there will suddenly lose their place at the table. And we are hearing this right now in that state called Florida as well as in other parts of the country, right? There is a fear that if we do DEI education, diversity, equity, and inclusion, if we teach black history, if we teach queer identity and allow schools to talk about that, there is a fear that those who don't share those identities will suddenly no longer have a place at the table, which is such a sad conclusion. Because the truth is, when more people come to the table, and we listen to each other's stories, and we develop more compassion for each other, we don't find ourselves bumped off the table. We find the table growing, and there's more room for everyone. We find our own hearts expanding. I remember when Ann was pregnant with our second child, and I was having a conversation with another dad who had four kids, and I remember saying to him, so when you have more than one kid, like, do you have to divide up the the love pie, you know, and now each kid only gets a half, or in your case, a quarter of the pie? And he said, no, man, that's not how it works at all. When you have another kid, you get a whole nother pie. It's limitless. We need to think the same way about what it means to be humanity, that when more people come to the table, this circular pie table, the pie just grows and grows, and so does our heart and level of compassion and understanding for each other. Now, still, not everybody is anxious to have people join and come to the table to bring their stories and their experience, which is why I love the quote from Shirley Chisholm who said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring your folding chair. She just has a folding chair. She's just going to be here for a minute. And then we listen. We hear the stories. We learn about the experience of this or that person with a folding chair. And suddenly we're all transformed and realize, maybe you need a more permanent chair here. One of the most powerful things for me about this story of the disciples walking to Emmaus is that nobody knows where Emmaus is. According to biblical archaeologists, there are at least nine possible locations for the village known as Emmaus, which to me suggests maybe Emmaus is nowhere because Emmaus is actually everywhere. It's everywhere where we find the table, and the occupants of the table growing and expanding, where we're seeing one another, recognizing our common humanity, and celebrating the presence of God in each other. Amen. Ashe. Namaste.